Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Happy Labor Day weekend. Last week, we gave you part one of my December 2017 conversation with Wayne Tebow. That aired in January of 2018. This week, we air the second part. Next month, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art will offer two Tebow exhibitions, Paintings and Drawings, a presentation of Tebow's and SF MoMA's collection, and Artist's Choice, a Tebow-selected installation of artworks from the museum's collection. Both shows open on September 29th. Wayne Tebow, after the break. This summer, visit the Guggenheim Museum in New York to see Giacometti, called Majestic by the New Yorker. Featuring nearly 200 sculptures, paintings, and drawings, the exhibition takes a close look at the art-making process of the Swiss artist Alberto Giacometti, known for his distinctive sculptures of the human form. Experience the show through September 12th, including on Tuesday nights when the museum is open until 9 p.m. Tickets at guggenheim.org slash Giacometti. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. Experience theater under the stars at the Getty Villa with the Greek tragedy Bacchae by Euripides. Packed with striking scenes, frenzied emotion, and choral songs of great power, Bacchae follows Dionysus, god of wine, ritual, madness, and fertility, as he arrives at his birthplace in Greece and spreads his cult among the people of Thebes. Find out how the story unfolds this September 6th through 29th in a dramatic outdoor venue modeled after ancient Greek and Roman theaters. Tickets available now at getty.edu slash 360. The critically acclaimed exhibition Botus Isaac Kingelez, City Dreams, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Described by the New York Times as, quote, phenomenal, and by the New Yorker as, quote, euphoric, this complete retrospective of vibrant, ambitious sculptures of imagined cities made of found objects like soda cans and bottle caps is not to be missed. Get more info at moma.org and plan your visit today. You know, the, your Half Dome paintings, some of your other paintings, especially the Ridgeline paintings, often have kind of a mysterious ethereal cloud right there for no Very apparent reason. Abstract, so, almost. Not almost. Like, totally. Where does that cloud come from? Probably a movement I'm not at all interested in, I don't think, until I find out later I am. <laughs> That's surrealism. And... Uh, First person to mention that was my dealer, Alan Stone. He says, God, you're a, now you're a surrealist? <laughs> but the interesting thing is that a, um, a meteorologist told me that that happens, actually. At half dome. Yeah, I read that. Because they form some way these ethereal clouds over them sometimes because of the weather. So could that... I didn't know that when I painted it. So about the surrealist element of the cloud, that could also, you know, to expand that idea, it's kind of the thought cloud of the, of the subconscious. 
but it, it could also be a reference to the thought cloud from cartoons. Exactly. And did you see the New Yorker cover where the cloud is over the pie? Yes. <laughs> so that's that. So the art editor wanted to know if that was the soul of the pie. <laughs> <laughs> Does pie have a soul? <laughs> so there's a that's an example of your, your pre-art making cartoon days working its way in. Oh, I am an old cartoonist. Yeah, yeah. I love cartoons. Are there any other things in your work that you think specifically reference your cartoon days? Oh, a lot of it. A lot of it. Mm-hmm. Cartoon and caricature, which I'm very fundamentally interested in. That's interesting. I went through books of yours in the last week or two looking for caricature, and I couldn't really find a lot of caricature. Couldn't find anything that said caricature to me. So where do you think the caricature survives? The caricature of color? Bonard's a great caricature of color, as are Indian miniature paintings. You could almost denote style, stylistic variations based on caricature, whether it's medieval illustrations or Mayan forms, Egyptian. I brought this to some art historians who were very irritated with me, saying that those are not characters, those are stylizations. Now, what in the world is different from stylization and caricature? It seems to me character is a better word because it's more inclusive and expansive potential, but I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. You have a cartooning background, they don't. That's right. Oh, one more thing on on Half Dome and Yosemite and and, 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 and that. To paint Half Dome is to paint granite. Granite is white, which is a color you've been known to use, but granite isn't quite white. It's flecked with black. When you've painted granite, you have not added black. You've added color. Is painting granite interesting to you because it engages a color that you've really kind of owned, white, and that you've had to find other ways of doing something with it? I'm asking that horribly. Gee, I don't know. I do know that I like the granite in Tahoe and in Maine, where those slabs of granite are right in that beautiful blue, deep blue sea colors, almost black and white in a sense, or dark and light at least. You always add color to granite when you paint it, though. Well... Yeah, but there's no such thing as white or black, is there? In the real world. I mean, there is in your paintings. All those white backgrounds really are white. But if you wash your black sweater, and you find out it's purple. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Riverscapes and agricultural landscapes. I understand that the standard art historical story of why you started painting riverscapes and agricultural landscapes is that you and your wife bought a house south of Sacramento at one point, mm-hmm. and that you spent time looking out at and beyond your backyard. I think you had pear trees. Yes, a pear orchard. Pear that's orchard. Right. Yeah. So that's nice and wonderful. But surely there's more to why the Central Valley landscape interested you than just that you could see it. I mean, you still had to decide to make scores of paintings of it. So what are the other reasons? Well, it's 
largely unknown territory. You mean pictorially? You mean in art history? Yeah, I haven't seen much of it anyway. It's like the bio, I guess, too, and so on in many ways. But it was different for me as a California landscape in the fact that it changed so much from oh, yeah. uh, fall to where everything's sort of dark, black, muddy, to spring, which is quite colorful. Lots of amazing greens. And then uh, summer with wonderful fruits and vegetables and crops of many kinds, and then fall. So you have these continuing color and uh, form changes. What I wanted to try and do, because I'd go down and draw a lot, particularly from the levees or sometimes just on the ground and do, do paintings, that I I thought the interesting thing would be if you could do it, it would be almost what I did with the city pictures, which finally were all done from memory also, the San Francisco ones, to take units and try to get them to come together. So that's what those Delta series were, were composed of. They're all done from memory and from bringing those various things together, the water, the patterns, the seasons, and to try to get a painting out of that combination. So it really is like a color and design project using actual elements from having drawn and painted there. We touched on fauvism earlier. Mm. Is fauvism more important in the Central Valley landscapes than maybe anywhere else in your work? I think it's more blatant and bigger. I don't think vastly different. It's definitely bigger. I mean, bigger, yeah. yeah. Were you conscious of that when you were, when you were, when you were painting them? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, it's always different when somebody like me comes along and sees or thinks of 20 of them at once, because then you really get the opportunity for something to blare out at you when you mm. see or think about a group of them together. But when I do, boy, they scream phobism and, the, and an engagement mm. with mm. that kind of use of color. Yeah. You know, another, one of the elements in the riverscapes that's not in phobism mostly is water. The water, the rivers in, 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 the, in, the, in the riverscape and, and farmscape paintings are, are these dramatic gradations of one or two colors. They're really spectacular. Was part of the idea or interest in those paintings to paint water? Well, it was, it was a wonderful challenge to try and see what you could do with it. I tried lots of different ways of dealing with it. But water, I suppose, was the hinge for most of them, maybe. Mm -hmm. Primary. Its effect, probably the most dramatic outside of uh, farmers toiling and uh, marking. Are the riverscapes a specific intentional engagement with Thomas Cole's famous painting, The Oxbow, at the Metropolitan? I knew it, certainly, and appreciated it a lot. I think I've thought about it when uh, sometimes 
trying to see, do I want a pool here? Do I want a reservoir? Do I, what would work in this area and so on? So the, the use of memory certainly would, that would be an enhancement to think about, and I have thought about it. And assigning different... Hudson River painters and those marvelous uh, ones that Barbara Novak re- sort of rediscovered of those... Nature and culture. Beautiful black seas and red tidelands and... She left out the West, though. Wonderful, yeah. She cut out the West from her histories. <laughs> You're a big tennis player. You still play? <laughs> still playing. Wow. <laughs> well, to say I'm playing, at 97, all we do is go out and insult each other for about <laughs> an hour and a half. <laughs> but it gets us out and gets us moving around. Oh, no, I love tennis. Tennis is a... Magical game. I'm a big tennis nut, so. <laughs> uh, I know you've played Frank Stella a bit over the years, right? <laughs> Who wins? He beat me. He beat you? <laughs> he, uh, he, at that time, was pinning those protractors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he had this looping forehand. That ah, the ball just, yeah. that's what it does. Yeah. <laughs> you don't move in on it, it destroys you. <laughs> but that's, tennis is like... <laughs> Tennis, the joy of it is playing on a Mondrian painting. Well, you've made tennis paintings, both of individual tennis players, kind of in the midst of a service motion, (laughs) and you fulfilled a commission for Sports Illustrated to go paint Wimbledon. Treat that was. So, how did that happen? Well, this crazy art director, wonderful guy, Dick, what Richard, what? (laughs) There it goes again. He was an art director for Life magazine and got Matisse to let him do a cover for Life magazine for Christmas of his original, of his his cutout paper. Oh. When he was doing the chapel. Yeah, yeah. And that put him in good shape. (laughs) They let him do a lot of projects. And when he got to Sports Illustrated, he got some of the pop artists to go to places, sports, and then produce work for the magazine. And he came to me and asked me if I, how I would like to go and make a series of paintings of hockey. And I said, hockey? I never even watch hockey. All they do is fight. <laughs> he says, yeah, but they have a nice white background. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I said, no, doesn't compute. Well, he says, how about the salt flats racing? And you did make a painting of the salt flats, of cars on salt flats. Did I? Yeah, one. Not for him. Not for him. Not for him. Not for him. <laughs> so he says, well, what, what, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I've never been to Wimbledon. Well, that how that happened. There were four <laughs> paintings in the magazine. Did you make more? Did, I do? Did, did you make more at Wimbledon than just the four in the magazine? made lots of drawings, but ah. those are the only four. And I was almost afraid to show him what I'd done, especially because one is only a ball on a That's line. an amazing painting. That's an amazing <laughs> painting. That's, that's one of my favorite Wayne Tebow's. You play tennis? No, but I watch a lot of it. I travel to a lot of tournaments and stuff. Mm. I haven't played since high school. 
that one of the ball on the line because you don't know if it's in the air or if it's on the ground. You don't. There's there's obviously the Mondrian thing. Funny painting. It's a really cool painting. But anyway, they, that was a marvelous two weeks. Have you been back? Did you ever go back to Wimbledon? No, I haven't. Did I go back? No. I've I, never been. It's wonderful. Wonderful. If you love tennis, that's the one. Let's do a little cityscapes and freeway paintings. You know, as we mentioned before, the cityscapes are obviously related to San Francisco, while not being San Francisco. But especially for those of us who have spent a lot of our lives there, it's impossible to separate those paintings from from San Francisco. At some point, I'm guessing you had to decide that you were okay with the cityscapes being pretty close to being of a single city. I mean, they're definitely, yes. they're definitely not Kansas City. Yes. You know? <laughs> so why were you okay with Although that? Although the, uh, the roadways, the freeways, were, that was done, that was started at least, and done in Houston, Texas. Which is a lot like Los Angeles. Totally. Wait, wait, wait. How did how did the freeway paintings start? In well, I was invited uh, by Mrs. Demonil to visit Rice University and do a demonstration for students, and we got acquainted. And so then, I uh, while I was there, I, I remember making that, starting that painting, for some reason. So I did. I did a shoe painting there. A very, a very Van Goghish shoe painting. Yeah, it's black a, shoes. Just shoes, rows of shoes. Yeah, and I remember she came along to watch me one Sunday while I was painting, and kept asking, "Why did you put that there?" And I had to say, "I, I, I don't know. Just, <laughs> I, I don't think she's very impressed." <laughs> so that's why in some of the freeways paintings there are smokestacks, and, and maybe. Because I didn't know they were they were Houstonian. There were some big building things going on. I remember and very lot of smoke. So why was it okay that so many of the cityscapes, all of the cityscapes, resemble San Francisco? Uh, I think for that dislocation idea, that uh, equilibrium, the falling, the uh, the danger of of balance and uh, earthquakes and so on. And where they would put something, where there was a kind of what I would call contextual impropriety. Yeah. That that thing should not be on that big pile of dirt, (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) But it was fun to fool around with that again, uh, again, my old cartoon. One, One of the things about the freeway paintings that I didn't, no, until I was researching to talk to you. About eight or nine years ago, you told Eve Ashheim in this wonderful little book of a series of interviews with you that the freeway paintings were all over paintings, like Pollock, where, mm. where the, the painting goes end to end, top to bottom, fills the whole darn thing. Except for you had wanted to do all over paintings in a representational mode, and, and thus freeways and cars and the buildings. Simple question, why was all over painting, a la Pollock, only with a different subject matter, something that you wanted to do? I think something of my experience in New York with those abstract expressionists 
who were often talking about, particularly like Milton Resnick, Pollock, Barnett Newman. They were interested. They said, we do these big paintings because we want them to escape from the room and escape from themselves and come out and they would sort of picturesquely say, we want them to dance out into the world. We don't want them contained in these. That's why we don't frame them. We just strip them or not even that. And that interested me as an idea that if you mm-hmm. could sort of suggest that, these freeways that would go on and on clear across the country and so on. That was one of the ideas. The problem with that is it's a lie because it, first of all, is contained. And if you don't pay enough attention to that, it's too likely to become more like wallpaper and doesn't self-contain and self integrate as a composition, which is such an important thing for paintings, I think. Paintings are little worlds, painted worlds, in my definition. So they need to be completed or have a sense of completion. They they need to stay alive, they need to have energy, they need to have tension and all of that. But finally, it should be a little complete world or view of the world. I had this wonderful trip just last year going to see my big hero, Velasquez. Mm. That painting, <laughs> I got, got to see it. Well, it's... Las Meninas, you mean? Yeah, Las Meninas. It's mostly just stuff apart from the figures. And the mirror. You're, well, you're seeing the back of a canvas... All that section, is, that's about half the painting. Then there's the back part, which another section. He's standing there with his brush. And then this little group of people, the nuns and the maids and the dog. And so on. It's an astounding little world that's uh, made itself almost as real as the world for me. Have you made a painting about Las Meninas? I haven't. No, I don't dare. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't talked about cakes and pies, so we should talk about cakes and pies for a minute. Back in the day, you purchased paints from Bay City Paints. This is in the early 60s, and found that their paints were too thick to achieve the textures you wanted for painting icing and cake. There's, There's a great little bit in the catalog for the Minetti Shrem show that focuses on this. You told an interview, an interviewer, I think it was Carol Mancusi and Garo about 15 years ago, that you sort of needed to whip up those paints and that you would then, when after you had whipped up the paints, would pretend you were actually icing the cakes in the paintings. Was the important thing about that the relationship between what you were making and Trump Loet? I think that trick of the eye painting style doesn't interest me much unless it's very low bas-relief painting. Hmm. Anytime you put a violin in or a gun, anything which comes out too far, for me it just absolutely doesn't work at all. It has to be like papers, stamps. 
peanuts. About the paint, Bay City was a terrible paint. It's <laughs> uh, it's like an enamel, really, and it's runny. It's like Pollock's use of duco paint, mm. automobile paint. He discovered that from Siqueiros, who used it in Mexico when he was down there. But the paint which I used had to be more, you see, if you use runny, it doesn't form the grooves. In the ridges. It doesn't that, yeah. stay rigid. So you have to get it so it's viscous. That was the, the uh, reason why I had to abandon Bay City paints and just use actually uh, titanium white in its uh, basic form and then put with it, at that point I was using that age-old uh, medium, a third turpentine, a third damar, and a third linseed oil, I think. One of those three things. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, did you actually whip the paint? Like with a whisk or something? or a... No, you can do it with a brush. Get it enough so it'll sort of stand up in peaks. Or... So at about this time, you make a painting called Chocolate Meringue, and a couple of years later, The Great Neapolitan Pies. Meringue, of course, is whipped. Were you consciously extending a line between subject of the painting and what you had to do to make the painting? I didn't think of them as separate for some reason. There's a story, however, about Alan Stone decided on the first show that he wasn't going to serve wine. He was going to put pedestals up with actual pies and hang strips of suckers in cellophane or other things like that rather to get the people interested. Well, he had a French baker make a meringue pie. And he said, that's not, that's not tall enough. That's just a little flimsy meringue. I want one really whipped up. So he went back, brought back another one. <laughs> says, not, not high enough. He says, God damn it, that's about as high as you can make meringue. <laughs> so he, Alan brings out the painting of it. Oh, God, he says, that's not meringue, that's marshmallow. <laughs> A fake meringue. <laughs> you, you didn't change the title. <laughs> Did you paint meringue or marshmallow differently than you painted icing? I don't Not very much, I don't mm. think. One of, one of the uh, frostings I s squeezed out of a tube. The paint came out of it? You, you mm -hmm. squeezed did you like the way that worked? I think worked? it's the one in the National Gallery. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. That's right. Did you like the way that worked? No, because it seemed too tricky for some reason. Tricky in terms of doing it or tricky in the visual? Well, I think I should have used a cake froster. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to try and do that, get, get a good one that you could really, you know, explore as a making... <laughs> writing and all that, rosettes and so on. Did you ever? I didn't. No. <laughs> you still could. <laughs> no, you... I've made a lot, of, uh, a lot of mistakes, which is part of it, but fun to think of it.
You know, you talked about one of the uh, reasons the Central Valley landscape was appealing was because no one else had really done it as a painter. Were cakes interesting as a still life subject? Because while there was a long still life tradition, mm-hmm. there were there were not a lot of cakes. It was a still life subject you could own. I didn't think of it then, but uh, I I enjoyed always the long tradition of food painting. Mm-hmm. Some really beautiful things, Bruegel, and the little guy's got his hand in a pie, I think, and thumb in a pie or something. And it was great Dutch and Spanish spell life. Chardin. Food painting, Chardin. What a wonder. We haven't talked about much about your figurative paintings yet. When you worked at Universal Studios in Los Angeles in the late 1940s, I guess, maybe the early 50s? Right around Just there. Just out of the army, 45, yeah. 46, yeah, around there. I read that one of the things you did, you know, one of your jobs, was to run a spotlight following actors around the stage. That was in the high school days. Oh, that was earlier. That yeah. was earlier. That was when I was part of a stage crew in Polytechnic High School. So you told Eve Ashheim, the former student of yours, that running the spotlight was an influence on you as a painter. How? Well, yeah, Gene Cooper says that. Oh. And his first his early book talks a lot about the stage. And certainly it's important, I think. Whether important to in what the way? Extent, lighting the figure. I did Lots do that at Universal Studios where I had to... There was a wonderful art director, Misha Kalis, sort of legendary guy who hired me out of sympathy. <laughs> he looked at my sample and said, this is the worst damn sample I've ever seen. <laughs> but he, I had a few photographs of my paintings, and he he took me on that basis. He said, I'm a painter, he says. And he was a pretty good impressionist painter. He gave me the job of a great film they made called The Killers. Yeah. That Hemingway story. Yeah. Had me read it, and then told me to make uh, an ad for it. We had to make an ad that fits this size for newspapers to billboards, right? And he said, no, this is a a dark story. There's uh, Ava Gardner. This is one of her early films. She's in a revealing black dress. I want her as in some way encased in those letters, killers. And so I did my best, came in, looked at it, and just blew his top. God, eh, I don't want to ask for a perfume ad. Because I'd made these little sweet little... <laughs> Anyways, get out of here before I kick your balls out. And the word out <laughs> made a big impression <laughs> on me. <laughs> But he was wonderful. He says, now, here's the way to go about this. And he put up a tracing pad. <laughs> he took a pet cart- carpenter's pencil with that big flat edge. <laughs> he just just tore the paper and he says, Katie! <laughs> anyway, he sent me back. And then I had to go and photograph it. That's what I was getting to. Photograph Ava Gardner with a photographer. 
And as we're as I'm leaving the office, he says, "And make her show some legs." <laughs> so here I am, twenty-one-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm supposed to tell Ava Gardner. So I tell the photographer now. Misha wants you to tell Ava Gardner to show some legs. He said, I'm not going to tell her that. <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell her. But anyway, I'm getting at it because you spotlight them. So I'm trying to get images to do. Anyway, the upshot was Ava comes. She's very flouncing around. So on. Now, what do you want me to do? I said, and you, she had a black dress on. <laughs> it took We took a few photographs and then I said, well, I better tell her because she was just kind of standing and she did have her, her, a split here. In her dress. In her dress. So I, I said, the art, uh, the uh, Misha Kalis asked me to tell you to, when you're posing, because you're going to be like almost like a letter, to show some leg. And she looks at me, says, so, you want to see legs, do you? And she pulls up her dress like this. <laughs> legs. <laughs> I was so embarrassed, I couldn't see. But that was, I don't know why, what am I telling you all this stuff for? Anyway, I had a wonderful uh, time being a, trying to be a painter. So that, that light... The intensity of light that you would use right. yeah. in stage in Hollywood. Later did on, I photographed you. Uh, several actors, and that was the thing to really light them so that this shadow. I think he, uh, Gene, reproduces some studio photograph mm. of that kind, showing the shadow and showing the Hoot Gibson or somebody. We talked about Richard Diebenkorn earlier. <laughs> we haven't talked about Robert Bechtel. In 1977, you made a painting called 24th Street Intersection of an intersection of, you know, four-way San Francisco-esque intersection with power lines above it. It's a phenomenal painting. Well, Robert Bechtel lives around the corner from 24th Street. I think Bechtel was at 20th in Texas or something. Mm. Maybe still is. Were his paintings, and maybe especially his prints, of... San Francisco hills and power lines important, interesting? I didn't know them. Didn't know. Did that. He's a good guy, good, good painter. But I don't use photography and think of it as a real enemy of painting. But those names are not correct. They're just names. Right, right, on. right. Well, but in that case, I wondered if there was a, a tip <laughs> of the hat. You know. Yeah. You, you've all in, in you've also made a number of paintings of you know where eighty percent of the painting is a window through which we see a view, and there's someone sitting at the very bottom of the painting, and we have this mm. moment of oh, yeah. of confusion and delight between flatness and recession and organizing the thing in our head. I'm 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 guessing those are a little bit informed by Elmer Bischoff or Hopper Bischoff. Hopper, sure, yeah, there. Bischoff's a wonderful painter. He has a wonderful painting of someone in a library in a little orange sweater that is awfully nice painting. Yeah, he was an influence also. I don't know people who've painted that way that have 
come into my mind at least. Maybe you know some that have used that idea, do you? The the idea of... Of a f- figure in with a large enough window to see a uh, city. Bischoff. I mean, he's the only... I mean, I just think of it, you know, I think it's in your paintings, it's in some Bischoffs, although the city beyond the window in your paintings is much clearer. I guess we think or assume that when Pizarro, in those late paintings where he's looking down at Parisian boulevards, I guess we assume he's removed the window. But the figure's not there. But there's no figure there. We are the, yeah. No, those are marvelous paintings, yeah. I wanted to ask about a not, an undated painting of yours titled Condiment Bowls, which kind of look like paint cans but aren't quite. Are they uh, food bowls? Yeah. Is that a bit of a reference to the painter's place, you know, your take on John's paint cans or de Kooning's infamous sloppiness? Not to my knowledge. It was more yeah. kind of straight painting with those ovals yeah. that felt so nice. And there were a number of those. Yeah, and they're terrific. And they feel very much like paintings about painting, mm-hmm. even though you're painting condiments. Yeah, wonderful things in there. Do you like that idea of linking painting to the outside world by making paintings of things like condiments, but that are actually paintings about making paintings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd still do that. Almost all of the uh, people, places, and things are repeated on and on still these days. If I want to paint a pie today, I just go and paint one or a series or whatever. I don't like the idea of a stasis of any kind. Every painting has its own measurement and condition of critical judgment. It's like when Catherine was so irritated with me because I brought little snapshots of my paintings to make prints. She was horrified. Why? She said, I don't, I don't want people coming here with their ideas. This should be original work. You should think of new ideas about painting. She went upstairs irritated, I mean, and she came down with a, a nice little lunch with a beer and an avocado and a sandwich. And she says, why don't you make a drawing of that? So I did. Actually, I did. (laughs) And then we had that discussion. And she she said about originality. And I said, Catherine, you have to understand the way I feel about it is that every painting, if I'm going to paint a gumball machine now, all I have is this needle, a piece of copper, and that gumball has got to come up to the mark. Otherwise, yeah. I'm not. It's, there's nothing for me to copy. There's no color. <laughs> no, the size is different. It's a new problem because it's and a different medium. She she tight. She tells that story on herself as a what she thought yeah. of as her naivete. So now she lets me make all kinds of mistakes. <laughs> we never print. So there's a great example, or there are two great examples of your having made work about other work, other, other artists' work. So it's interesting to hear that story and then to kind of try to segue to this one. One's a painting called 35 Cent Masterworks from 1970-72, <laughs> which is 
just an outrageously funny painting. I mean, there's a lot of humor in a lot of your work, and I'm and and, and it's totally here. There's a a little 35 cent postcard version of Cezanne, Monsau Victoire, uh, Matisse's The Surf, a De Chirico, a Degas, a Monet, a Mondrian, a Velasquez. You know, so it's it's both this hat tip and riff on <laughs> painters you love, and and another painting kind of in the same vein, um, but done differently, is a 1962 painting called Four Pinball Machines, in which the vertical part of the pinball machine, so not the part you're playing pinball on, but the lit up part that has the score and tells you how you're doing and all that. The four pinball machines are, that, that vertical part is your having a little snarky fun with forms that we would know from Jasper John's painting, from from Frank Stella, from Ryman. And in both of those paintings, you were being unusually direct in addressing other painters. Usually painters kind of hide their address of other painters a little bit. Mm. But this was, boom, right? Both of these paintings are just taking them head on. And early in your career, in both examples, what made it okay to do that? Painters are so shy about that, but... That's the way most painters have learned, making copies. Remember, Matisse was a kind of professional copy for a while. And never shied away from it, really. And never uh, worried about it. I have my students where they have to do it in order Mm -hmm. to get intimately connected to what painting is about and short circuit with some sense of intimacy how it feels to paint a certain way or to move your brush or to have to account for a certain shape or a character of brush strokes or whatever. Those are the tools that everybody uses. Interestingly, I didn't realize any influence in those pinball machines. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. I have to say the truth. Subconsciously, (laughs) maybe? It startled me. I'm going to have you point out the ones that the influence of those. I'll show you. I'll show you when the tape's off. Or I'll show you. I'll show you at the end (laughs) when I can move the computer. (laughs) I'm happy to hear it, but I want to see it directly. Oh, I'll, I'll. Yeah, I'll, I'll, and we'll have images on manpodcast.com. There are two other specific paintings that I suspect are you consciously having a little funny bone fun with your peers. 1961 painting drink syrups for vats of brightly colored mm, drink liquid. Right. Is that you having fun with Ellsworth Kelly? No? Mm-mm. Just reads that way? No. There might be some others that Kelly and uh, was directly used, the drink syrups. And there's a, uh, a 1966 pastel called Bale Rose. They, they look like, and of course the title suggests they are, bales of hay, rectangular bales of hay on a field. Oh, yeah. Is that is that having a little fun with Donald Judd? No, it has fun with Manet, Monet. Ah, where the haystacks have been bailed up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I had never read, and I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't even noted existed, an artist statement, which is really a short essay, that you provided to MoMA in 1962. They asked you for an artist statement about your work. 
and it's maybe 800, 900 words long. And it's reproduced in the, at the end of the catalog for the Minetti Shrem show, which is how I found out about it. And it's quite amazing. And it's where your art still is all these decades later. Do you remember writing it? Do you remember, was it specifically for MoMA or if you'd written it for something else? For MoMA? San Francisco or? New York. New York. I don't remember them ever asking me anything. Oh, all right. But Kenneth Baker, the art critic, when he saw the show at first, asked me for a statement. Is it oh, maybe that's a right. lollipop tree yes. worth yes. Yes. painting? Yes. That was for Kenneth Baker. Oh. And he didn't know that. I didn't know he was going to use it. Yeah. Uh, he just showed uh, well, Wayne, Wayne Tebow, it's been a pleasure, a thrill. Thank you so much. Not at all. <laughs> That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.